0: Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com.
1: Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about the case against dividend investing, the sacred cow of buying dividend stocks. We're going to talk about why it's really focusing on the wrong thing. We're going to talk about why dividends don't actually protect you as much as you think they do, and we're also going to talk about how dividend investing is connected to oil and gas professionals and and how it impacts the tax picture. So, Justin, let's start with dividend investing. And I think you should caveat this because you wrote in your newsletter, and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, you totally should be. We talked about an article that was, you you published an article that was very pro-dividends. So I would just briefly, like for our listeners, explain what that article was about and then why it's still intellectually consistent for us to just complete take the completely opposite side in this podcast.
2: Yes. So this newsletter, I want to say it was maybe our our late April newsletter, um, spent the entire newsletter talking about the historical uh, endurance of dividends and and just unbelievable stats uh, over the past 70, 80 years in the markets. If you struggle to to believe in the capital markets and to stay invested during good times and bad times in, in volatile markets, I think focusing on the story of dividends over the past 70 years is an incredible way to unlock just how incredible it is that we get to invest in the great companies of the world. So long story short, the entire newsletter was just going through historical facts over the past 50, 60, 70 years, looking at the role that dividends have played in the stock market. Uh, And it is pretty incredible. Uh, just how much endurance uh, dividends have had, how they've led and contributed to total returns and um, uh, what companies have been able to do with dividends over a multi-decade time period. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Jared, because uh, this entire podcast is going to just obliterate dividends. And we are going to make a strong case for why you should run from a dividend-only portfolio or, or even, let me Step back there. You should be very weary of just even a dividend-focused portfolio. Um, I think I think it's a horrible strategy, horrible emphasis, and it really misses the point. But before we tell you all of these things that are that are pretty anti-dividend, uh, it's important to know that we love dividends in the right context, and dividends are an incredible uh, part of the picture uh, when it comes to long-term investing.
1: Yeah, and that's a great framing. I would say we're we're trying to right-size dividends, right? Like we're not trying to remove them. And that may, that may be a good title for the podcast. But we're just trying to right-size them. And I think the case of dividend growth and appreciation is really one of just compounding in general, right? Cuz like the f- the first point we want to make is like dividend appreciation and dividend payments matter. But you just need to right size them, right? So, like, we have we this is gonna be loaded with uh, show notes. So, go to our website and check out all these resources. But the first thing we re- really want to talk about is kind of just how it gets maybe more of the spotlight than it needs to. So, I'm looking at this great chart from uh, J.P. Morgan. They make a guide to the markets, and it shows going back to 1950 uh, the return by source uh, for the S and P stock market. And from 1950 to 2021, 3.3 percent of the average annual return. Came from dividends and eight point two percent came from capital appreciation. Justin, what is what does that tell you? And, and does that does that number surprise you at all? I just think it's incredible.
2: And and yeah, this first point is that we we are focusing on the wrong thing if we're only focused on dividend payers. And it really is incredible to see how much of the total return of the stock market is attributed to dividends versus capital appreciation. But then what struck to me is, is something happened in 1980, and the markets were very different before 1980 and then after 1980. So dividend uh, dividend returns, I mean one, the, the total return, the total return was X and the dividend portion of that return was minuscule after 1980. Uh, but if we remove the portion of the total return and just say how big was the dividend, I mean, it was twice as large from 1950 to 1980 as it is post 1980. So pretty, pretty incredible to look at that.
1: I wonder what is, what is like attributing to that, right? Like, do you think like there's any macro things or, But but it almost like, it almost gives me empathy for someone who's a dividend focused investor. Cause you know, like looking at this chart, the, from 1950 to 1989 or the early nineties, it was closer to, you know, 4% of the return was dividends. And, you know, if you look at the last 40 years, it was, sub 3%, right? So that, that number's changing over time. Any idea as to why that is or how you think that's relevant to our investors?
2: I think that's a great point. Part of it is over time, you know, companies, markets, just use of capital period has, has continued to get more efficient. Um, and I'll, there are a lot of benefits to that, but I want to just repeat something you just said. I get it. I get why so many people love dividends when you look at this chart. So take my parents, for example. My parents were born in the mid-1950s. They grew up in the 60s, went to college in the 70s, started their career in the late 70s, and then into the 80s. Their entire life experience was uh, comprised of almost half of the stock market's return was due to dividends for their entire life up to when they were the age that I am now. Uh, and then 1980 and especially 1990 happens. Uh, the 1990s come through and, and all of the return is now capital appreciation. It's way less focused on dividends. Dividends are paying much less than, than just pure appreciation is. And you then go through 2000 and you see all of that wiped away in the biggest market crash of anyone's life up to that point. And so this chart's really illuminating for me. And if you're not watching this on YouTube, I would encourage you to just check out the show notes and look at this chart. I truly understand how, if if I take my parents, for example, if you're born at that time and and you grow up, you start your career and dividends play such an incredible role in the market uh, and then capital appreciation takes the stage, but then there's this huge, horrible market crash. And then another one, eight years later, I, I understand why dividends dominated um, the, the popularity contest for so long.
1: Yeah. And it was just a function of like compounding, right? Like if you think about an investor in the years prior to 1980, getting a diversified low cost basket of funds or of, you know, thousands of stocks that are globally diversified was next to impossible. Right. So you bought what you knew and it was larger, more established companies. And so naturally there was, you know, a dividend tilt just because, right. Like and you talked about this we're not anti-dividend. Like we believe in dividends. They have a place in the portfolio. We're very pro-dividend. But it really, what it does is it exposes you to one part of the market, right? Because if you think about what dividends really are, we probably should have defined this earlier. It's a return of capital to shareholders, right? And there's a few different ways you can deploy capital. You can return it to shareholders. um, And there's two ways you can return it to shareholders. You could uh, pay a dividend or you can repurchase stock, but you can also reinvest that. Right. So when you're paying a dividend, you're making the declaration of, Hey, I don't have any really compelling growth opportunities to invest this money. So I'm going to return the capital to shareholders, which is great. But the problem is what your portfolio tends to look like. is a lot of companies that are mature. They're mature companies. So the return profile, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be lower than smaller companies, right? So there should be less volatility because there's a lot of embedded risk in those smaller companies, but also, you know, lower from Potential future return appreciation, right? A company as big as Walmart or ExxonMobil can't can't grow revenues at ten percent a year with how big their current sh- balance sheets are. Uh, it's just logistically very difficult and almost impossible for any company like that to achieve that. But it's important to realize to kind of right size and understand. Okay, what are dividends and what type of stocks are you exposed to if you own a dividend centric portfolio?
2: That's right. That's right. And uh, we will also include this in the show notes. But I, I do want to define uh, this equation that we talked about. And uh, we, we just posted an article on our website recently, The Dividend Dilemma. And we will, we will post this equation and, and it's, it's found in that article. But if we just give, it, give you the most simple definition of how you make money when you invest in a stock or when you invest in a fund that has hundreds or thousands of stocks, The equation is really, really simple. That equation is total return equals appreciation plus dividend. So there's two parts that go into making money into a stock it's appreciation, that company just reinvests excess revenue, they reinvest back into the company and they grow, they create more opportunity, the stock price appreciates. So that's one part of the return. And then dividend is the second part. Uh, you can also say stock buybacks are the same as dividends as well, but uh, total return is appreciation and dividend. And so, I think it's really important to understand that equation just as an investor. But it's also important as we talk about our fir- first point here that if you are focused on dividends and amplifying dividends above all else, well, you're f- you're focused on the
1: wrong thing. It's like owning a business and one product's responsible for. of your sales and the other is responsible for 70% of your sales and you spend 70% of your time on the thing that's responsible for 30% of your sales, right? It's just not like in terms of like fixation of like time and energy, like the capital appreciation is the thing that's going to move the needle in your portfolio. And that's historically been the case. So we're not saying no dividends, but right, like you and I said, we're totally fixated on total return. And I know we're about to talk about AT&T, but right, it's easy to get sucked into A dividend, but if you're leaving money on the table because you're focused on dividends, um, that's that's a suboptimal investment strategy.
2: Yes, I I I grew up as as a huge basketball fan and and stuff. It's kind of like focusing solely on getting assists rather than just winning the game. Um, So Russell Westbrook a few years ago was was kind of in the news for a bunch of negative. Points about how he always chased a triple double. So every game he tried to score more than ten points, have more than ten rebounds, and have more than ten assists. But his team wasn't very good, Uh, and so I think dividend investing is that. Well, one player getting a triple double all the time—that that that might lead to wins. It's by and large, it's a good thing, Uh, but it doesn't. It's not the end goal. It's not the north star. So forget about triple doubles. Just do whatever it takes to win. And that's, that's our message with dividends. And, and I think the best example, let, let's dive into the AT&T example since 2009,
1: 2010. Yeah, you, uh, you have that pulled up. I'm, uh... Yes. And
2: we will also link this in the show notes. The original article is from Ben Carlson, uh, a wealth of Common sense.com. Highly encourage you to read this piece. Um, and it's titled, How to Create Your Own Dividends. Such an incredible article. I mean, it, it could almost summarize our entire podcast today. But he started by looking at at and performance and at and dividend over the past decade. And this was as of mid or late 2021. So this is about six months old or so. But the AT&T dividend uh, over the past decade had an average dividend of about 5.7 or about 6% highest uh, part of that dividend yield, that it, it hit eight and a half percent. What's interesting is the lowest, the, the dividend did get as low as, gosh, it went down to almost 4%. So a pretty wide range of, of where that dividend yield came in. So one, let's be clear, AT&T had a great dividend. They had a huge dividend. This is a dividend that is several times higher. Well, not several, but a few times higher uh, than most companies. Uh, but Jared, how did AT&T fare? in
1: total return yeah i'm looking at this same chart and over that same time period uh at&t was up 58 percent and the s p was up 388 percent. so a 6x but it, but it's interesting too like i don't want to gloss over your point of like the dividend volatility right because of the price volatility right it wasn't as it wasn't as linear and smooth sailing and it probably it probably felt good right because you had that you had that cash flow coming to you but Because of the, you know, the total return formula and where we know where a lot of the total return, the primary driver of total return being capital appreciation, you know, AT&T had good growth over that time period, right? Good growth for a large company that's kind of saturated in the market and just late stage cycle company, right? Like it it makes sense, but it just, you know, it's easy to get sucked into that dividend. But if you take a look back and look at total return, man, I would not want to be invested in only AT&T.
2: And I will, if you have any other points, we'll definitely give it back to you to cover them. But I just want to say one thing to end this point. When, when, you, when we say that you're focusing on the wrong thing, there's big consequences to doing this. at and and this wasn't exclusive to at and a lot of dividend payers underperformed in a huge way over the past decade. But I think the message I want to convey is that that's a really big deal and that has horrible consequences for you. Uh, If you didn't play a part in in the bull market of the past 12 years, uh, you can't go back and undo that. It is so critical to have passive exposure everywhere because you don't know whether the dividends are going to take the lead and and provide the biggest return or whether growth stocks are going to dominate as they have. And if you listen to our podcast, you know that we do love uh, tilting And having great exposure to smaller companies and to value companies, so we love that. Uh, We'll also link a link a in our show notes to a Med Favor article that dividend investing is not necessarily value investing. Um, So another great piece there. But I think the main kind of warning I want to give is if you go all in or you're super focused on dividends, well, you probably underperform the market in a just unbelievable, unbelievably large way over the past 10 years, and you can't undo that. Jared, you've mentioned time diversification. If you want to compound your money and you want to be a successful long-term investor, you have to have exposure over decades because a lot of times the bulk of a return, so if the stock market averages 10% a year, well, a lot of times it does that because in one or two years, it made 40%. And you need to play a part in that. You cannot park all of your money or even most of your money in AT&T or, you know, Coca-Cola, McDonald's type stocks. You don't want to have super, super exposure just to those companies. Um, If you did, you missed out on a massive bull market over the past
1: decade. And dividends, there's, I think there's a connotation with it feeling more secure, right? But I think that's an illusion because if you go back and look at that JP Morgan chart, um, the worst decade from a dividend yield perspective was also the worst performing from a capital appreciation perspective, right? 2000 to 2010, dividend yields were their lowest, right? 1.8. And there's a pretty wide range there, 1.8 to 5.1%. So there's a lot of volatility in in that return, right? Probably based on the PE and some of the fundamentals related to that, but there's this false sense of, Hey, if I get a dividend, it's always going to be this, and it's always going to grow, and it's always going to be this percentage. No, there's a lot of volatility, like as evidenced by you know the chart that you showed with AT and T. But it doesn't. It isn't necessarily like a like a diversifier per se, and that dividend yield can fluctuate wildly.
2: And that is the second big takeaway we want everyone listening to this to have: dividends do not actually protect you. That just blew me away when you sent me this J P Morgan chart. Um, so during the worst decade, it had by far the the lowest dividend amount of the last 70, 70 but,
1: years. But this, but right, there's also no predictive power of dividends because the second worst dividend yield by decade was the 2010s, where the dividend yield was only two point two percent, well below its historical average of three point three, and capital appreciation appreciation over that time was eleven percent. Right, so there's not this linear correlation between. If dividend yields are worse, capital appreciation is worse. It, it's kind of all over the place. But over the long term, capital appreciation is the, the, the pool you want to be swimming in.
2: That's right. Um, and I, I think the other thing with dividends don't protect you. I mean, let's just keep camping out on this at and example. AT&T had an incredible dividend. This dividend is is something close to 6% over the past decade. That's a beautiful, amazing dividend. But the appreciation was nothing. So let's go back. What is the equation? What equation determines how you make money in a stock? It's total return equals appreciation plus dividend. So take AT&T in this equation. Appreciation was virtually nothing plus the dividend, which was uniquely high, great dividend. But still, the total return was awful compared to the rest of the market.
1: Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Now that we've talked about right how they don't really protect you and how you know the total return equation, let's get into some more pragmatic points for our listeners. I want to talk about um, the tax implications and kind of thinking about and this well, this will go back to Ben Carlson's article and then really kind of a unique point that's related specifically to oil and gas professionals. But let's talk about right tax inefficiency. What would you say in terms of? Right? Like this kind of would be a point to, we talked about not overweighting dividends, but I want to build conviction further to say, hey, if I'm total return focused, I would, and, and if it were up to me, not saying it, that is always the case, but I would prefer no dividends. Right? And that may sound crazy to some of our listeners, but why should people strive to want no dividends, assuming that total return is equal? No dividends
2: means that you get to pick your own dividend in the exact time and circumstance that gives you the lowest tax bill possible. That's why. And uh, if we want an example, I think Warren Buffett is is a really good example here. And so why has arguably the greatest company in America, you know, what, what are they doing up in Omaha, Nebraska that they haven't paid a dividend? Excuse me, they paid one dividend. In 1967, they paid a 10 cent dividend. Uh, Buffett famously says that he thinks someone must have snuck that past him, uh, and then he made sure that it, it never happened again. And yeah, let's let's camp out there, Jared. Why is Warren, Why is Warren Buffett not paying a dividend at all? And by the way, before you answer, let's give some really important context here. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway has more cash holdings than almost anyone. I mean, their cash holdings rival a first world country.
1: Yeah. I mean, right. It goes back to what we're talking about, like allocating capital, right? What is the highest and best use for this capital for shareholders, right? When you pay a dividend, it is is a declaration that there is nowhere I can allocate this capital. And so it's a way to return capital to shareholders, right? And the way that Buffett has made his living is by strategically allocating capital opportunistically, right? So he's, he's not in a rush. He's not going to deploy it all at once or need, feel the need to have all the cash working, but he, he wants to be opportunistic and he wants to use it to buy good businesses. And he thinks his shareholders are going to be exponentially better off if he continues to allocate that capital versus paying a dividend, right? And so that's one of the reasons why Berkshire has performed so well over a really long period of time is because it's aggressively allocated capital Two projects that promote capital appreciation. And
2: I think it's pretty fascinating if we take a really, really micro example. Um, so pretend if you're listening, pretend that you own a small business and you know you probably do want to grow that small business or, or excuse me, you probably do want to extract income from that small business to replicate a, a great lifestyle. Um, so let's say you're making 275000 a year and if you want to start a small business, you might want to pay yourself that same amount um, at some point. And so you might pay yourself that. But let's say that after a few years, your small business is now making $5 million a year. Well, think about it. Would you rather... There, there's two reasons why you wouldn't take a giant income. The first reason is if you have opportunities to reinvest in the business and you can turn a $5 million revenue business into a $50 million revenue business over the next decade, that's compelling. Who, who would ever say no to that? So of course, the obvious no-brainer is, well, let's let's reinvest, let's take that excess revenue, let's reinvest everything to get to a 50 million from 5 million. But then the second reason is our tax code punishes you pretty severely for taking income instead of capital appreciation. And so the way the tax code is written is, is pretty strategic, really. And it rewards you for reinvesting capital into new opportunities. Um, and so would you rather just take, you know, let's say you have a, a good income that meets all of your needs. Would you rather take an extra 600000 a year or would you rather reinvest it? Well, that 600000 a year is going to be taxed as income at high marginal rates. But if you reinvest it, you're not taxed on any of it yet. And your future growth is all going to be taxed at favorable cap gains. And so we take that micro example and I share that because it's a, it really translates pretty perfectly into a large, uh, large cap US or international company. A company today can either take their excess revenue, all of their profit, they can reinvest it and create new opportunities and, and double, triple their business in the coming years, or they can pay it out as a dividend. And if they pay it as a dividend, they just signed you up for a tax bill. Even if you don't want the dividend, even if you're just going to reinvest the dividend, you pay taxes on that. And so it's it's a really helpful framing uh, to just understand that there's a big tax opportunity, big tax reason to not have any dividends. Uh, but then it's also it's, it's logical. It's why Warren Buffett doesn't pay a dividend, because he firmly believes that he is a better allocator of capital than you are.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why, I mean, share buybacks have grown in popularity. I think because there's an understanding, it, it delivers shareholder value in a more tax efficient way, right? Like I could give a dividend that's taxable to people, or I can buy shares of my stock, which, you know, makes all of the stock more valuable and promotes more capital appreciation of that stock. But it basically gives each individual to shareholder, depending on their tax situation, the ability to realize the, the gains at, at the interval that they're comfortable with.
2: That's right. Uh, And let's back up a little bit. Jared, just why over, let's say, a 10-year period where you might have a high income, but then you retire, you have a low income, and then maybe you head into Social Security, RMDs, why are dividends not as favorable tax-wise compared to just appreciation and selectively choosing when to sell?
1: I mean, it alludes to what you were just talking about, like income volatility right? I think if, if your tax rate was identical all throughout retirement, it like from now until the day you died, it, would, it wouldn't really make as much of a difference, right? Because you're either going to pay 20% now or 20% later, but there's income volatility. Your income appreciates over time, and then it falls off a cliff during retirement, and then it picks back up near rmd social security age right so so there's income volatility right so filling up those low to no income tax brackets that's and you know we've talked about that idea in other other podcasts related to roth conversions but it's the non-linearity of income for the average retiree that makes this that makes this interesting
2: that's right that's right and uh any implications specifically for oil and gas that we need to talk through
1: Yes. This is uh, a smaller point, but right. if, if you pursue a dividend centric strategy, the underlying composition of that may be drastically different than the overall market. right? So one of our fundamental philosophical underpinnings is passive investment exposure, just kind of owning everything because humility exists at the center. We don't know what market's going to do well when, so we own everything. But a lot of times when you pursue a dividend invest- centric strategy, you take s- strategic you take sector bets, whether or not you know it, like a great example of this is like, if you look at the SPY, a large S&P dividend fund, the energy weighting is about 4%. But if you look at Vanguard's high yield fund, that weighting of the energy sector is closer to 9%. And right, one of the things, big things we've talked about is you've essentially doubled your energy exposure, right? And you're probably overweight financials as well, because those are companies that have historically paid uh, above, above market dividends, right? And so you may be making a hugely concentrated bet and overexposing yourself to a sector that all of your human capital is already tied to, right? Which flies in the face of one of the ideas we've talked about a lot in in earlier podcasts, which is diversification, right? So pursuing a dividend centric strategy, you naturally gravitate towards real estate, financials, and energy. Um, Those are typically the sectors that historically pay above market dividends. So you're making concentrated sector bets. And doubling up on exposures. And you may not even know it as, a, as an oil and gas uh, employee. So that, that's another thing to think about that impacts. You If know, most of our clientele weren't in oil and gas, it would be less of a point, but it's still a concentrated bet because it's a lot of people with individual stock related to their company. It's ma- If you look at your household balance sheet, you're taking a massive concentrated risk to one sector. So that's another another nuance and wrinkle of how all this fits into how you think about dividends.
2: That's right. And pretty beautiful thing if you were happen to, you know, have a lot of exposure to oil and gas over the past 12 months, but we're not talking about a 12 month investment landscape. We're talking about a 30, 40 year window uh, where you need to make great investment decisions over a long, long time.
1: Yeah. And that's really what this podcast is all about, helping people just kind of, you know, right size their investments and focus on the things that they can control so that they can have the best odds of investment success. Um That's where we'll wrap it up. We love dividends. It's just nuanced. Um, But we we just wanted to right-size them. So we'd love your feedback and ideas for future episodes, podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.